You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Not so bad yourself? Doing great. Episode 199, huh? Come a long way, my man. Yeah. <laughs> Still don't know what we're doing, but we're doing it. <laughs> I remember when we did our first episode and we're like watching the number of downloads and it was like 20 downloads. We had 20 downloads. We had double digits. Double we digits. We are the smartest people in the world. <laughs> and we knew everybody who downloaded. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like eight of them testing on different devices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I had a conversation with somebody who asked a very insightful question, which was, why do people hire you guys, consultants? Uh, why don't they just do it themselves? And I had to reflect and think about that, but I, I thought there were kind of three areas. I want to bounce these off of you and see if you agree. So the first one is kind of lack of experience or capability with what the project or effort is that they're trying to do. So, you know, you and I have a lot of experience in building IAM programs. So for an organization that doesn't have someone with that experience, they bring in quote unquote, the experts. I hate calling myself the expert, but, um, you know, so that's number one. Number two was they lack the quantity of staff in order to go at the speed that they want. So, you know, they have a limited number of people on the team. They want to go fast. They want to implement software. They need to burst up. So consultants are a way to do that. And then the third area, which I, I kind of feel like happens the least, but it, it could happen more, um, is because maybe consultants can do it at a lower cost. So those were the three that I came up with. I mean, there are certain scenarios that, you know, I think in that last one, it's usually not expert consulting, but managed operation. I mean, how many organizations do you see outsourcing the operations ongoing support of their IAM system. I, I'm seeing it more and more all the time. Yeah, I see it more and more, but I think you get what you pay for sometimes. And I don't know if it's necessary. It's been great for like, yeah, let's keep the lights on. But I don't find those companies that have taken that step as innovating in their identity programs. They've basically stopped moving forward and have hit the pause button on everything that they're doing. They really don't care about keeping the lights on. I think it's pretty rare that you find a true partner in the, in the managed service partner area that is actually still continuing to help their customer, their client evolve, improve, stay current with the trends in the identity space. You know, they're trying to lower their costs as much as possible. And especially if they're on a fixed fee, you know, sort of like retainer type thing, they're not going to volunteer additional work. That's going to hurt their margin, right? Hey, this is inside baseball for consulting, right? This is just how it works. Um, you mentioned a couple of things, right? So experience, speed, the lower cost. I don't know if you get all three necessarily. I think it depends who you work with. Um, the experience, I think, is the most important one. I think you're not, you're, the thing that I think find is most helpful is that you're bringing in people who have done it before and who have made the mistakes before. So they can tell you what mistakes not to make so that you can fail in new and novel ways rather than ways that have already been done before. <laughs> so you know, I, and I think that that's just the reality of the situation is, okay, well, you and I have done, I don't know, hundreds, I think at this point, you know, of strategy engagements and advisory and assessments and things like that. So we have the experience of going across number of different verticals 
a number of different companies of size, use cases, et cetera. And we kind of know what works, what doesn't work along with our own experience in the enterprise where we both kind of came from before consulting. So I think that's the biggest benefit. You know, the, the reason why you wouldn't want to do it, cost. I mean, why wouldn't you want to get into an ex, you know, get an expert who can do it unless you can't afford it? And then let's be honest, right? Budgets are a big things, especially right now, the way the economy is going. Not everyone has X number of dollars to bring in an expert to, to help solve their problems. And I think that's where things like this podcast, ID Pro, you know, conferences that are out there, things like that. There is a lot of good stuff that's out there that I think people can kind of tap into. The accelerator, I think, is helping people understand, okay, here's what you want to be looking for. Here's what, here are the things you need to think about versus trying to figure it out on your own. And you may be successful or it might take you longer to get to that successful state compared to someone who's been on that road before. I agree. I think conferences are a great way to learn. I think one of the best things about conferences is when Jim and Jeff uh, facilitate a session, which I posted to my LinkedIn today that we are facilitating a session at the Gartner Sum IM Summit, which is in two short months, not even, in, uh, in Grapevine, Texas. And I put the post out there to see if folks would volunteer questions because we're going to do more or less like a, a fireside chat and um, with, you know, no fire. to, with no fire. <laughs> Maybe a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, I'd love to kind of gather questions, but my other question for you. So looking at the agenda for Identiverse now and mm -hmm. kind of gearing up for us going there. And what I wanted to know is, will you do, uh, the morning yoga session with me. <laughs> no, sunrise yoga. Thank you though. Appreciate it. I will be somewhere getting, trying to find chicken and waffles if I can, uh, and carving up, right. I gotta, you know, be ready to go for the day. Yeah. Well, there's no better way than to start with sunrise yoga at six thirty AM. Yeah, no, uh, uh, that's going to be a no for me dog as uh, Randy Jackson would like to say. Um, <laughs> you mentioned the Gartner thing. I definitely want to get this out there, right? We're trying to, you know, really come up with good questions that we can ask the Gartner analysts out there. They've been very gracious so far. If you are concerned at all about what you might want to ask in public, I did reply to your comment on LinkedIn or your post on LinkedIn. Feel free to DM me. I will keep your secret identity secret. And we're going to take the best questions and try to jam them. We're only half an hour. And there's a couple you and I have already come up with. And we want to make sure we try to get, you know, good, solid hard questions that we can really grill Henrique and Becky on. So if they're listening, I hope they are prepared. Um, you know, the, the intent is to really get to the belly of the beast as we're calling it for the Gartner IAM conference. Yeah, absolutely. I, anybody who volunteers a question to, uh, I'm going to make an offer. You <laughs> DM me your mailing address and I will send you an identity at the center uh, sticker, which is, like one of those cool vinyl stickers, which is weatherproof. It's also dishwasher proof. And um, yeah, I, but I think most people will put it on their laptop lid. So that's kind of cool. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is an exclusive thing. I don't even have a sticker. <laughs> so people will be able to have them. Uh, our friend Stephen Strong uh, has put a sticker on the back of his trailer. So somewhere in the Seattle area is an identity at the center sticker on the back of his I'm not sure what he's toting around in there, but that's the only sticker that I'm aware of in the wild. But it'd be cool to see more out there. So yeah, DM Jim your address and he will send he will 
try to remember to put the sticker in the in the letter before he mails it. Um, yeah. And then that's an and inside then joke. Yeah. Uh, all right. Why don't we get to our topic du jour? Because we've covered a lot of topics that she can certainly help us with. Uh, I'm very happy to have Sarah Cicchetti back with us. She is the head of product for AWS Cognito. She's a co-founder and board member of ID Pro, and this is her third time on the Identity at the Center podcast. Welcome back, Sarah. Hola. So it's been a while. The last time you were with us in person, in quotation marks, because we're all virtual at this point, right, uh, was episode 101, where we talked about AWS Cognito. And at the time, they about to or newly released CID Pro certification from ID Pro. So oh, I'm sure a lot has happened. We're going to cover that. And then after that, we did a, an episode. And by the way, that was like one of, our, I think, our most popular episode that we've ever done. So if you haven't heard her episode, that's a great one. Everyone, for whatever reason, decides to go right to 101, which is fine with me because episode one, frankly, sucks <laughs> because it's literally me on Zoom with Jim on an echoey basement office, and it's not the best audio quality. The content's good, I think, but the presentation, we a little more desired. So there we go. 101, Sarah. Um, why don't we start there real quick? Because if, I, if people want to know their or your origin story, they can always kind of go back and listen to that. How is... Let's start with CID Pro. It's been a couple of years. How's that going? It's really exciting. Um, we've had uh, a number of different people take the test, and uh, a vast majority of people are passing. Uh, they tell us it's a hard test. It's really challenging. It, it makes them uh, feel like uh, they don't know everything about identity, which is true for everyone, right? No one knows everything about identity. But at the end of the test, you get um, scores for each of the five different pillars that are on the test. You actually know, like, okay, I passed, but this is how well I did in each area. Like, this is where I can go and read more of the body of knowledge, which we'll talk about later, and and kind of expand my skills. So it's it's been valuable, not just from the point of view of validating, like, yes, I am an expert in this. I do know what I'm talking about but also helping you understand where your growth areas are. I think that's super unique and super cool because usually when you take like a certification test, it's just like, did I pass or fail? How did I do? I don't know. And you don't really know what, how you did and what areas you need to study on. I, I can tell you it's not a pushover test for sure. I am fortunate enough to have been involved in the first round of creating questions. So I think I have, I don't know if my question is still in there, but that is not a pushover test. So people who are CDI, CID Pro certified know their stuff. You know, maybe they're not 20 years into it, but they definitely had to, you know, study and have some experience to get this done. I think the target for it is what, two years, I think, of experience. Is, is, is that roughly kind of what it was looking at or was it more or less than that? Yeah. So we had a bunch of identity experts, yourself included, me included, uh, write questions for the test. The questions are hard. But when we calibrated the test, we had a bunch of identity experts take it. We knew how long each of them had spent in the field. And so we said, okay, where should we make the cut line for this test? Is it you have to get 70% of the questions right? Is it have you 90% of the questions right? And we made the cut line right at people who have less than two years of experience answered fewer than this number, and people who had more than two years of experience answered more than this number correctly. So if you have two years of experience in the field, on average, you should be able to pass the test. Yeah, I it's, it's a good test. I'm definitely recommending to folks to go out and take a look at it. We always talk about ID Pro. I think, hands down, the thing that is most, most worth it is the Slack channel um, and just having access to so many smart people. I know that I've asked questions in there and gotten answers you know, pretty much right away for you know, my daily work and things like that. 
Um, even if, even if you are a lurker, which I tend to be in those types of scenarios, it is so worth it just to, just for just the Slack channel. Yeah, there are a lot of industry organizations that are just kind of collections of vendors and different ways for vendors to sell at you. And ID Pro is really just a collection of like doers who are like, oh, God, no, don't do that. Don't use that product. Like you'll hear a lot of negative things, which I think makes people feel like, oh, this is an authentic place to, to be and to hang out and to get honest information. Yeah, it's a cool spot. I mean, I think this is one of the things I enjoy about the identity industry is, you know, for the most part, I feel like people are very welcoming and sharing and for a lot of folks, this is not secret sauce information that they're trying to hide as something like that is competitive for other reasons. You know, unless obviously you're a vendor or something like that, that might be something. But for the most part, you know, people are willing to answer questions, share opinions, which I find the best part because, you know, sometimes you talk with analysts and other things, they won't share an opinion on something. They will give you a fact <laughs> and not tell you why something is the way it is or what they really feel about it and things like that. ID Pro is totally different. You'll hear from Vittorio, Sarah, Ian, uh, you know, Eric, a whole bunch of people who are out there just answering questions and, and telling you how they see it. And, you know, it's 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 a good spot to kind of collaborate, commiserate, celebrate, <laughs> whatever it may be. And there's a whole job board too there, which is cool. So, if, you know, for for people who are looking for identity work, there is a channel dedicated specifically to finding roles within the identity field. And I think that is or all even around the world. So it's not just focused on the U.S. It's global in nature, which is pretty neat. Um, the other episode that you were with us was episode number 151, another very popular episode where we reached out to a bunch of our Identorati friends, yourself included, and we asked the question, what is the difference between digital identity and identity and access management? Now, I would like to play your clip that you sent us that we played on that show just to refresh people's memories, because after you listen to this, and it's about two minutes long or so, I'm going to ask you the question, has your opinion changed anything having heard from the five or six other folks that we asked and the five or six other different answers that we received from the different people in identity? So let me play that clip now, and then we'll, we'll keep going here. There is no difference between I and digital identity, and I suspect that's what many experts will tell you, but that's not true. There's a very important and overlooked difference. There's a division of the U.S. government called the National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST, and their job is to measure things. How long is a meter? Ask NIST. How heavy is a kilogram? Ask NIST. Well, in the 21st century, they started measuring not just physical things, but digital things like security and identity. They wrote a document called Special Publication 800-63. The publication outlined a way to measure how strong an identity transaction was. And it used a measure called level of assurance. How sure can I be that the person at the end of the line is who they say they are? As that document went into broad use, they found it had cracks in its armor. It wasn't doing the job that it was intended to do because it was too one-dimensional. And it was one-dimensional in exactly the access that we're focusing on in this episode. It conflated IAM with digital identity. It said that the strongest transactions have both strong authentication mechanisms and strong identity proofing, meaning that we verified the real-life identity of the person at the end of the line. But that measure leaves no room for a very important use case strongly authenticated anonymous users. Imagine a political dissident who wants to tell the story of what she's experiencing in her country, but she needs to keep her identity hidden so that her government won't find her. Do we need strong authentication for that person? Absolutely. We need to use the strongest technology we have to make sure that her lines of communication haven't been compromised. Do we need strong identity proofing for that person? No. 
identity proofing that person could actually compromise her safety. We need strong IAM without strong digital identity. That's when NIST hired a team of identity experts, including myself, to rewrite the whole concept of identity verification. We threw out the one-dimensional measure and made it three-dimensional. Now, instead of one level of assurance, there are three. Identity assurance level, authenticator assurance level, and federation assurance level. Because IAM and digital identity are and must remain different. So, Sarah, has your opinion changed? No. In fact, I think this has gotten even more important. Like, as we're seeing... Uh, wars in Ukraine and Russia as we're seeing civil unrest in Iran. Like we need to get firsthand accounts of those things. And at the same time, we're seeing a lot of upheaval in Twitter and saying, oh, you have to be verified. We have to know your real name. You have to have a credit card, right? Or we're not going to promote your content. We're not going to show you in search. We're not going to, we're going to shadow ban you, right? And so I think it's a, it's a really important topic more than now than ever to say, is this actually a valuable thing to know someone's real name. Like, it's certainly valuable to know they're a human. It might be valuable to know where their uh, citizenship is. And so this is an an interesting place where uh, we might want some zero-knowledge proof technology to come along and say, like, I don't want to know who you are, but I do want to know that you're a U.S. citizen. I do want to know that you're a human. I do want to know that you're an adult. Is there a place for anonymity on the web? I think there has to be. Um, I think if if we want people to be honest and have free speech, you have to allow them to say things without using their real names. Right. I, I agree. I think that's important. But I think there's a danger that comes along with that. I mean, some of the kind of the vitriol we see in message boards, I mean, it ties back to people's ability to be anonymous. And would they say those same things if someone knew it was them saying them? Sure, but there are other solutions to that, like moderation. That doesn't mean that we have to get rid of anonymity altogether. Yeah, a good answer. And, and what I thought when we were going through that episode is like, yeah, I think you had the most academic answer. But you know, after you after we listened to your answer, I was like, yep, I agree. And then we had Ian's, and after listening to that, and it was different. It's like, yep, I agree. And then we had. Um, you know, uh, one which we played on a different episode from Fridenity, and he made his analogy of like it's like football. You'd be talking about the physical object of a football, or you could be talking about the this idea of a game that we all call football. And I was like, yeah, that, that I agree with him too. <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way. It was like the, the the context changes based on who you're talking to, and. What I found interesting about that conversation was of the people that we had on that that um, sent us something, only one person was not an identity product person. And that was Adam from Texas A&M. And he had a completely different answer to what was generally kind of agreed sort of a, you know, uh, I think what we call like a a, a disagreement of identity was still sort of an agreement. (laughs) And Adam was the only one who had a completely different, he actually flipped it on his head. He saw IEM as sort of like the thing at the top. And then digital identity is the thing below that. Whereas everyone else saw it flipped the other way. And I wonder if that was something because of how close maybe people in the identity industry are. We work in this stuff day in, day out. And Adam is running an identity program for, I think, the largest university system in the world, as far as I know. Um, so he has a totally different, right? He's, a, he's more of a consumer of identity products. 
Whereas you, you're managing a team of identity people and you're building AWS Cognito and other identity type products, the same as like Ian for Salesforce and, and uh, J- uh, Jamie at Sadiant, things like that. And I wonder if, if it's being so close to the problem, you know, sh- shades your answer one direction or another. Well, I think it speaks to what a poor job we've done as a community of actually defining our terms and making them consistent. That's something we're trying to do as part of ID Pro. There's an article in the body of knowledge that is just terminology. And some of the uh, words in the terminology have multiple definitions, right? Because different people define them different ways in different contexts. And so we're at least trying to codify all that in a way that's free and online where people can go and look at it. Um, but yeah, I th- there's, a, there's a lot of things that the identity community has done in a terrible way. Like every time I get in an Uber and they're like, what do you do? I'm like, I work on login systems and I'm so sorry that we suck at our jobs. <laughs> yeah, I get the same question too. It's like, well, how do you do? Like, well, I'm a security consultant. So what does that mean? It's like, well, you know, like IDs and passwords, that sort of thing. And then it's like, all right, end of conversation. They have no desire to talk to me after that. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. <laughs> yeah. It's me. Sorry about that. But I think that was the genesis of the conversation is because there are so many different, you know, different interpretations of that answer of, you know, what is identity? And Jim and I have this joke, and this is something I've been doing for years. We have, you know, we're identity, we're identity and access management experts, right? And then one of us might ask, well, you know, at the end of a session, well, what is IAM? What is that? And it's just a running joke that Jim and I have. It's kind of stupid inside baseball. But let's talk about identity and access management and managing a team because, I would imagine you have a pretty large team that you're managing from a Cognito perspective. And I think this is an area that we really haven't touched on is what is it, you know, what is it like to manage people in the space of identity? We talk, we talk an awful lot about technology and standards and how things work, but people are still the biggest equation when it comes to making all this stuff work. And as the actual end users, and we really want to kind of get into, you know, what is it like, to manage an identity team. And I guess I'll just start off the question, you know, what's the most important thing that people should know about managing a team? Is there any difference between managing a normal team, as I'll say, <laughs> versus an identity and access management team? Not that they're not normal, but I hope you get my drift. Yeah, I think one of the hardest parts of managing identity projects in, in managing general software projects is that the timelines are really unpredictable. Right, because identity is a security perimeter. It has to have really high usability. It has to have really high availability. Right, if the login system is down, nobody's doing work. Nobody's buying widgets. Nobody's uh, doing whatever they're supposed to be doing. So we have to have extremely high usability. We have to have bulletproof security. Um, we're subject to a ton of regulations, both security regulations, and if you're in the consumer identity portion, as Cognito is you're subject to international SMS regulations, which are changing constantly to try to combat spam. And how do you, how can you use long codes? How can you use short codes? What do those costs look like? Uh, we're subject to app store regulations. Um, and then like we are middleware, right? We have a hundred things upstream. We have a hundred things downstream. All sorts of things could break us if they make small changes. We could break all sorts of things downstream if we make small changes. And so if we want to make really big changes, that means that you've got to get a whole bunch of people on board and, and ready to work. So it's uh, it makes the timelines really unpredictable. So if, if you are an identity team manager or, or you work in an identity team and you're going, oh, my God, like, why do these projects never come in when we think they will? Like, you are not alone. That is that is completely consistent with what the rest of us are feeling. And that's part of being an identity team is that, like, you go with the flow and things get done when they get done. 
sad but true but i guess solace in the fact that you are not alone right there is the, the human equation of it and i think about when we think about building an identity team there's also the human side of it to say okay well who are the people that we're going to have on this who's going to work on what and can we find the unicorn that knows the technology is great at documentation understands how to communicate with customers and clients and things like that. Oh, and oh, by the way, they're also really cool to work with, right? There's no personality issues there that might cause conflict. I guess from your perspective, you know, I, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask it anyway, right? Do you hire for knowledge or attitude if you can't find both? Yeah, I mean, ideally we want both, but finding knowledge is hard, right? Finding identity experts is really difficult. Amazon pays a lot of money and we have trouble finding people who are identity experts. When we do, it's great. I love working with Dean Sachs and Aaron Crow and all the people who I work with who are just amazing. Um, But obviously that's hard to find. So as soon as you get a critical mass on your team, what we tend to do is just hire for ability to learn, right? Um, And are you a nice person who will help others learn once you get to be an expert and not just sit in a room by yourself and tell people to go away? (laughs) Miserly I am wizard, you know, pay no attention (laughs) to the man behind the the curtain, whatever it may be. Um, Jim, I know this is a topic that comes up a lot, right? It's like we always get asked. It's like, what does our I am team look like? And I don't know. I'm going to ask that question as if I was a client and I'm trying to stand up an I am program and services at the enterprise level. So not on the product side, but hey, a consumer of these services out to my my users. What do you know, what do we kind of think is our, kind of our viewpoint on how do you build an IAM team to start with? Yeah, I think it, it roughly is shaped like a pyramid, right? You you have to have people with a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge at the top. But I think to Sarah's point, like having people who work well with others, so you can kind of build that team you know, the wide part of the triangle and the bottom of people who have less experience and less technical skills, put them in the right training, get them the right project experience and invest in them. They'll then move up the pyramid. And I, I think one of the risks is that, you know, those people might leave your organization. This happens no matter where you are. I'm sure even Sarah thinks about that with like at Amazon, like, Hey, these people might move out either to other parts of Amazon or they might leave the organization to go make more money elsewhere. But look, that's what we have to do. We have to invest in people because, you know, one is the right thing to do, but number two, some of the people are going to stay. Right. And if you don't invest in them, they're still going to move up the ladder. They just won't be as prepared. So, you know, those are my thoughts. But what about you, Jeff? Yeah, I feel like, you're totally right on, right? I think if you try to plan around the worst case scenario, you'll never get anything done. <laughs> so if, and if, but if you're operating a good, effective team that takes care of your own team members and gives them opportunities and things like that, I feel like that's the kind of stuff that it will work out in the end. Give me attitude over knowledge any day. If I can get both, fantastic. But if I can only have one, I feel like I can train the knowledge. It's much more difficult to break habits, personalities, attitudes, things like that. And, you know, everyone wants to work with people that they like to work with. Jim, you and I have been working together for uh, eight, nine years now at this point. We are complete opposites in real life. And yet it works, right? <laughs> Just whatever, for whatever reason. And somehow and sh- people think we're twins, right? Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, we, we couldn't be further from that. And, and I don't know how that even is possible, but OK. <laughs> um, let's talk about the knowledge aspect of it, though, because 
that's probably the next step, right? Is I think we can find people who have good attitudes. I think we all have those people in our lives and teams that they are just, you know, great people. How do we embolden them and give them the tools they need to grow better or to improve their knowledge in a certain area? And I'm curious, Sarah, from your perspective, like what do you establish as sort of like the baseline for IAM knowledge as someone joining your team? You know, if it's, I would imagine there's probably a difference if it's someone who's, you know, never had a job before or not, you know, not in that space versus maybe a couple of years or maybe even more. Like what is, how do you establish that baseline? We do a lot of things. It's not easy to get people up to speed in identity. Uh, but the, the first thing we do is have them join ID Pro. So a um, little plug here, uh, idpro.org. Um, uh, Amazon is a member at a level where we get unlimited memberships. All of our employees can go be members of ID Pro. Uh, I would highly recommend that for your organization. And that just gives them a place where they can go ask any question, right? I have a stupid question about SAML. I have a stupid question about OpenID Connect. I have a stupid question about IDA, whatever it is. And very nice people will come and, and help you and, and, and share their experience with you. So that's, um, that's a big part of it. Um, uh, pointing them toward the body of knowledge and having them read, uh, especially the Intro to Identity article um, and the uh, Nishant's MFA for Humans article is a great one too. Um, doing those, uh, we try to create a culture where it is okay to escalate and they know what they should be escalating about. So uh, when they see something that might be a security issue, like, hey, we were testing this with fake user data and we noticed that fake user data showed up in the logs. Like, should we be paging someone? Like, yes, you should be paging someone. And if it turns out that it's fine and it's not a problem and that was totally intentional behavior, then you say, you know, this was unnecessary, but thank you for paging me, right? If you tell them, like, you wasted my time. Stop doing that. Think more about what you do in the future, right? If you're mean to them, then, then the next time that happens, they're going to be like, oh, well, I better not tell Sarah about that. She's going to be mean. We always want to make sure that, like, if someone is bringing up a security issue, no matter how, like, there's a 1% chance that something is wrong, that they get praised for, it. like, yes, please bring that to our attention immediately. That's a huge part of it. Um, on my team, we have a weekly learning meeting uh, for half an hour where we just, we watch an Identiverse video or we read an article or we do something. And it's a forcing function for us to go and keep up on the industry and learn what people are writing and saying and reading about uh, different identity topics. So that's a huge part. And we have our, our new engineers actually get on the phone with our customer support people. So they'll sit right next to a customer service rep and they'll put on their headphones and just listen to customer support calls and be able to hear firsthand, like, this is the pain that customers are having. This is the confusion that customers are having so that they get a real feel for what the customers are going through and how they can help, how they can build products that combat that. So there's a number of different things that we do to help get our team up to speed, but it's hard. It's challenging and we're constantly evolving how we do it. I find that interesting that you have people sit in on actual customer calls to kind of hear things. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's, that's something a little bit unique. I don't know if I've heard that one before. It was a way to get people sort of up to speed on the identity questions being asked. And I bet that there's probably some parallels that maybe people can take, even in the enterprise scenario, like what are people calling for password resets or things like that? And really kind of listening to the customer and probably their frustration with something that's not working. Absolutely. Uh, it helps us understand what terms customers do and don't know, right? It's uh, a lot of people tried to build identity systems like I'm just building an app and I need to build a login and I don't really know anything about identity yet. This is the first time I'm trying to do this. 
And all of a sudden, I'm drowning in documentation about OAuth scopes and claims and all of these terms that I don't know what they mean and I've never heard of. And what's a token? And where can I store the token? Should I store the token? Um, and so those kinds of questions um, are things that you know may not even occur to the average developer that, oh, somebody doesn't know this. Like They assume that the people who are building are identity experts and they all know. And um, that's not the case, right? Like when we build things, we have to be very, very clear at, as much as we can in plain English about this is what this system does. This is how you make this decision. Um, so having them on those calls and hearing that firsthand directly from the mouth of the customer is really helpful. It's nothing like pain in someone's voice to really jolt someone into doing the right thing. <laughs> you talked about the body of pro, uh, body of pro, the, the ID pro body of knowledge. <laughs> uh, you talked about sitting in on conference calls and sort of learnings around, um, you know, different webinars and things that are going on. And I think one thing that I'd like to get into a little bit is conferences, because I feel like things like Identiverse and Gartner's IEM Summit and, you know, potentially things like Identity Week and Chrysalis. And like, it seems like there's no shortage of places for people to congregate physically and kind of talk about different things. How important do you, do you see conferences as part of development? And Jim, I'm going to ask you the same question is like, how do you see that as being important for, for folks getting on there? Cause I'm curious to see how the answers either might line up or maybe not. Sarah, why don't you go first? I think it depends person to person kind of what they need. Uh, if they have no exposure to the identity community, I absolutely like they should be going to, to conferences. They should be meeting people. They should be asking questions. They should be getting an idea of like, these are the conference presentations that happen. For someone who's been to Identiverse for like five years in a row, then I'm like, okay, you probably can do most of the presentations that are gonna be there. Um, is, that, is that the best use of your time? Maybe not. Uh, maybe you should be presenting. Maybe you should be trying to get a keynote slot, right? Like maybe you should be trying to level up your, level up your skills or go to something different. Go to a European identity conference and see like, how are they talking about things? There's way more of a focus on consent, on privacy, on open banking, on things that are not issues in the US. And so that, that ability to go to regional conferences and see how different identity is in different places in the world is really interesting, really valuable. Jim, about yourself, I feel like for you and I, we probably have a little bit different take just because of the nature of our job. I feel like it's networking is a big part of getting out there and meeting people and things like that. Do we actually ever learn anything at these conferences? <laughs> <laughs> no, we do. I mean, you, you definitely learn through osmosis, but you also, we get to attend some of the sessions. But I just thought that Sarah's answer was perfect because attendance at conferences, really what you get out of it is going to depend largely on where you are in your career path. If you're earlier in your career path, just sitting in some of the sessions and the networking, you know, that's where you're going to get a lot of benefit. As you move further into your career, contributing is going to be more important. Um, I also was just thinking about it from, I mean, look, budgets are, are tight. Everybody, all, companies and management got used to not traveling and not sending people to conferences during COVID. Well, now it's back. And I think they're kind of slowly, you know, getting back into making that investment. But, you know, companies have to, you know, it's, it costs a lot of money to send somebody to a conference. You know, you've got the conference pass and then you've got the travel. And so I think, you know, if, if you're an IM company, you're probably going to look at it like, okay, business development is going to be your number one priority. 
But I think one of the other key priorities is rewarding high performers. And I think this is independent of if you're in the IAM industry or your company and you're doing IAM. It's if you've got people on your team who are high performers, it doesn't mean you need to send them to every conference. But most people, I, th- I believe, look at being sent to conferences as something that um, is like a reward. So they get to go, they get to um, network, they get to go out to some nice dinners maybe. And um, to me, that that's part of it. What do you think? I think that's spot on. I mean, I think I you have to like to do it. And I think I, I, I recognize the fact that not everyone likes being in that sort of social uh, you know, environment, right? With potentially hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people. That is not comfortable for a lot of people. And I think at least offering it as a choice, as an option for people who are interested, great. You're totally right about the travel thing. I mean, it's not cheap to go out of the stuff that I think people have not been going to conferences the last couple of years. Uh, I was at RSA right before things kind of shut down for COVID, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> and it was kind of like the last hurrah. And then things just went downhill from there. It was like, no, nobody's doing anything in person. And then I was at RSA last year when things kind of opened back up and there was like this celebratory feeling of, hey, we're back. We're, we're back. COVID is, is no more. Not Maybe not necessarily true, but there was, I think there was a sigh of relief that's like, hey, we're getting back to this. But you think there is value of being you know, in the same place with people hearing the hallway conversations that take place are things that just don't normally happen on a Zoom call, right? Or, you know, in a text message or an email or things like that. That's the kind of stuff that I find really invaluable. I always point back to, um, I think it was the Kubringer Cole um, conference a few years back on customer identity where Roger Grimes and I were at like a little table outside of this room and he explained quantum computing to me. And now I'm an expert on quantum computing just based on that 45 minute conversation that Roger was so graceful <laughs> with his time with and then let me, and you know, just educating me on the spot that would not have happened if he and I had both not been there, right? Him to impart his wisdom and share his perspective and me to absorb that, like a sponge as much as I could. So I think it's super valuable, but I think as leaders of teams and we all are that, is we have to understand that it's not always the appropriate choice for a person. They may not be comfortable in that role, and that's okay too. Maybe it's a virtual pass. Maybe it's some other, you know, learning development, you know, things like that that that, that they might be more comfortable with. And I think we have to understand and be okay with that as well. They might see it as a punishment. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean you're sending me out? I don't want to go to, I don't know, someplace cold in the middle of winter. Like that doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about. That, that concept of managing identity team. And I'm curious, Sarah, from your perspective, what is something that you wish you knew about managing a team of identity engineers and analysts or whatever it may be that you wish you had known that when you started that might have made your life a little bit easier? It kind of falls into what we've been talking about. I think one of the, one of the mistakes I made as an early manager was I, I put my people on things they were good at. And what you do then is you you cement their skills and keep them from growing, right? So when I joined AWS, they were like, oh my God, Sarah's an amazing speaker, right? She was an exemplary RSA speaker. She's an Identiverse keynote. She's a top 100 influencer, women in cybersecurity speakers, all these things. And my manager is immediately like, yeah, stop doing that. Like, you need to learn PL, You need to learn leadership. You need to learn like all these things. Like, stop spending all your time doing something that you're already good at. You don't need to learn that. And so when I get a project on my team that's like, yeah, this requires a whole bunch of data and analysis, like I don't go to the guy who's great at data and analysis. I go to the person who needs to learn that. 
And I mean, unless we're on like some crazy tight deadline, right. And we need our star players, but um, uh, really expanding the, the capabilities of your team means that you don't put the best person from the team on the job. What do you do to support that person? Like what's the support system that's in place where they understand that they, maybe they're not the expert on it, but you're trusting them or giving them the tools that they need to be successful and ask questions and things like that. Because I think sometimes there's this, I don't know, fear or whatever it may be. It's like, well, I don't know how to do this. So and then I can't do it or I'm afraid to ask questions or that. You know, what's the support system you put in place to, to help those folks out? You've got to cultivate a culture where failure is okay. So like the way that we incentivize our leaders at AWS is that you have to meet 70% of your goals. If you're meeting 100% of your goals, then you're way too comfortable. You're not learning anything. And so if you're meeting 70% of your goals, then like you're really trying, you're really stretching yourself. You're trying to do more than you've done in the past and you're failing a little bit and that's good, right? You should be failing a little bit. That's how you learn. I love that idea. Jim, what about yourself? Any tips for how you would, you know, support somebody who maybe, you know, we come across every day, right? Nobody's an expert in everything, right? How, how would we approach that on our side? Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't know if I have any real pearls of wisdom here, but you know, I kind of, I love identity and access management and I think that everybody should. And I think that, you know, you have to be prepared that some people, this is just a stop along their path in their career and they're going to go do some other things. Um, but I will say identity and access management projects are hard. You know, I've, I kind of feel like I, I talk about IM as middleware a lot and, you know, what's hard with middleware is that it's basically technology that's connected to other systems. So, so many other systems depend on it. That makes everything more complicated from the development to especially testing. And then when you go into production, how you keep, you know, the change, not only within your application, but all the connected systems to make sure that things don't go awry. And so, you know, I think that it's not for everybody, um, but, for folks who like really get a charge from a challenge like that, I think it can be a great place to build a career. Yeah, I think it's good. I think that's good advice, right? I think the three of us are identity lifers <laughs> probably at this point. Um, but I think it's important, right? The future CISOs, right? They may not be an identity expert, but they should be walk coming through at least some of this <laughs> on their way there. And I would certainly encourage folks to, you know, even if you're not interested in being an identity lifer and you're not that nuts like we are, um, you need to know this stuff to be able to really come up with a adequate and effective information security plan, whatever that is. You have to know what you're going to protect, who's got the keys of the castle, right? All that stuff. That's all fundamental. All the marketing terms that people have heard the last couple of years, zero trust. Guess what? Identity is at the center of that, too. <laughs> so you need to know that stuff. So even if it's not your primary domain or expertise within cybersecurity, for example, or information security, you still need to be conversant and understand it. And in those cases, you lean on the experts, right? And maybe, Jim, like your question, you're around, maybe that is where you bring in a consultant because you know maybe 20% or 40% and you bring in somebody who can fill in the gap to get you the rest of the way, 100%, you know, in, in a certain area, whatever it may be. I think you answered a question that I was going to ask next of Sarah, which is what is the biggest challenge that you have today about managing an IEM team? You mentioned just how hard it is to actually do identity access management projects successfully because of all the upstream and downstream things. And I'm curious, 
Sarah, is, is, is that a challenge for you as well? Is there, is there other sort of things that you see as like, these are the big bogeys that are out there that we really need to be aware of and manage against or for? There are a lot of them. Like I personally think identity and access management is really a, it's a very nascent field. Like we are the internet in the 1970s, right? It's going to be so much better in 30, 40, 50 years. And there are so many big rocks that we have to move. And so like too many good ideas is one of the challenges of like, you have to say no to a lot of things in order to be able to prioritize the really big things. And then the other challenge is like, okay, so you've got somebody new coming onto the team. They've got a, they just completed their CS degree. They're really excited. They're 22 years old. And you're like, yeah, we've got this five-year project that's going to like change this little thing. But changing that little thing is how we get to this bigger thing. And like, you definitely want to spend the next five years of your life on this, which is, as far as they're concerned, is like 20% of their entire lifetime, right? Like convincing them of that is is very challenging. Uh, but I... I think it's possible, right? If if you are passionate enough and you can kind of explain that this is this is a really long-term evolution that we need to have in the field toward usability, toward security, and it's not going to come easily and it's not going to come quickly. It requires a lot of people putting in a lot of hard work. Yeah, Rome wasn't built in a day. Uh, passwordless will not be built in 20 years. That's right. <laughs> I feel like we've been trying to build a password <laughs> for, you know, 10 years or probably another 10 years by the time it actually, you know, comes around. But the, the things that are happening now in this identity space, in the in industry itself, right? The advent of pads, keys, and things like um, the FIDO Alliance and getting Apple, Google, and Microsoft all to agree on something, right? Those are momentous things. And it is an interesting concept to say, hey, you are solving problems. You are working on problems that, they, that may not be solved in your lifetime, <laughs> right? However you define lifetime, whether it's literally, you know, you'll be dead <laughs> before it's done or your, your journey with a particular company, right? I'm sure there's people who's like, yeah, I started this and, you know, it's been, I'm working on this five years and here's sort of the end game that we're kind of working toward And then they decide to move on and work on something else. That is a, a very different mindset, I think, to have. And, you know, that sounds challenging to me, especially with, you know, some of the stuff AWS works on, right? These are huge, big problems. I don't remember the exact stats. I think the last time we chatted, it was, you get like a ridiculous number of authentication calls per second or per minute or whatever it was, right? I don't think normal enterprises deal with that level of scale. And you're you're working on the hardest problems in identity. And I would imagine that is reflected in, you know, some of the personality of the work that gets done for your team. Am I right on that? Or am I thinking about it differently? Oh, absolutely. Like uh, in, in AWS identity as a whole, we authenticate and authorize uh, over 500 million API calls every second. And that was as of last year. Like you can see how much our revenue is growing, even in a recession here. You can kind of imagine how much our scale is growing in terms of number of requests. And so the, the amount of work that has to be done just to keep things uh, smoothly running is huge. And then on top of that, to really revolutionize the field and say, like, and we need to rebuild this whole thing from scratch and figure out how to do it better, faster, more secure. Like, that's all big rocks that need to, that need to move and need a lot of passionate people. 500 million. That is I don't know, ludicrous. Is what I mean. I'm just going to leave that there. I don't think I can I can follow up on that one at all. A um, couple of follow-up questions here is just kind of the, the team aspect. I know we've been kind of running a little bit long and appreciate the time you've spent with us. How was that shift going from in-person to remote? 
you and I were kind of talking the other day about sort of this transition and it sounds to me like you guys handle a bit better than most, but I think that's part of the culture. And I want you to explain that because I think this is something that I think is a lesson that a lot of people can probably learn in the identity space and managing identity teams of how you can maybe replicate this. Yeah, one of the things that Amazon learned uh, in early days was that it's really easy to paper over uh, sloppy thinking with PowerPoint. And uh, one of the ways that you can combat that is by all being in the office together, right? And you're sort of batting ideas around and you're saying, oh, yeah, no, I didn't think about that edge case. I didn't think about that edge case. This is actually a terrible idea, right? But when you're remote and you just have PowerPoint, it's easy for those terrible ideas to kind of slip through. And so we got rid of PowerPoint altogether internally. We still use it externally. We use it for training, stuff like that. But when we have an internal idea, a product design, an investment proposal, we always write it down. And so we have this very document-heavy culture. Everyone here is a very experienced writer. And so when you go into an Amazon meeting, it's actually silent for the first 20 to 30 minutes while everyone reads through the entire document. So there's no charismatic presenter um, people with more charisma aren't more likely to get their ideas approved than people with less charisma. You don't have people interrupting in the middle to ask questions. Everyone reads the entire document and then everyone is aligned. I'm like, here is what we are discussing and you have all the information and now let's have a conversation about it. And so the transition to, to remote culture was really fairly straightforward for us because we have always had this culture of you need to write down your complete thoughts and ideas and all of the edge cases and all of the things that might go wrong as part of how you formulate your ideas. And so that made it very easy for us to switch to remote. So interesting to me because that culture that you just described, you know, gave me a little window insight. And I'm wondering if that's Amazon or Silicon Valley culture, or you know, kind of uh, tech company culture. But I'm also thinking that for some people, and probably for me, like, I might melt down in an environment like that. Like it's so different from everywhere I've worked. Have you run into people who just kind of melt down or do people kind of, even if they're, you know, coming from like a banking culture, they come in and they, I guess they either fit in or fall out, right? One or the other. There's a little bit of that. We try to select for it in the interview process. We actually make you do a writing sample as part of your interview so that we know that you can you can communicate your ideas in writing competently. But I would say actually the people we see falling over the most uh, is not due to the document culture. It's due to the ownership culture that we uh, push ownership very far down in the org chart so that each individual team is making decisions about here's what we're going to build next. Here's how we're going to do project management. Here's how we're going to get this thing out. Here's the order we're going to release things in. And those decisions are vetted with upper management, but they're not decided by upper management. No one is told what to do. And so we have when we have director level people come in from other companies and other cultures and, and try to like tell the teams, okay, we're going to work on this. We're going to work on this. These are your goals. Like the teams are like, that's adorable. That's not how we do things here. Like we're the smart ones. We will tell you what we're going to build next. And you can tell us like if it's a bad idea and why, and we can discuss it. But like there's no top down planning. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I wonder, you met, you mentioned project management, you know, I'm probably going to sound like a grumpy old man, which I do, you know, a lot of times anyway, but I, I'm like a waterfall guy. Like, you know, I just feel more comfortable when I have the plan all laid out and I know step by step. And then, you know, mid career for me, agile really gate gain steam 
scrum and actually I actually have a lot of respect for agile methodology when it doesn't just become an excuse to do without plan. I'm on my soapbox here, but I do have a question. So the question is like, where do you guys fit on that spectrum? Is it waterfall? Is it agile? Is this something in between? We actually let each team decide. So we have a concept of what we call a two pizza team, which means that a team that's working on something should be no larger than a team that can be fed with two pizzas. And so each of those teams gets to decide for themselves, okay, we want to do Kanban, we want to do Scrum, we actually want to do Waterfall, like that's what makes sense for our team for this project. So there's no top-down dictatorship about this is how you do project management. It's up to each team to say, you know, this is what we have experience with, this is what's working for this project, this is what's working for this team, we're going to do a combination of things, whatever it is, it's totally up to them. And it's, it's a little chaotic, it's a little crazy, but it works for us. That's cool. Now, if you had Jeff and I on the team, I think you'd have a maximum of four people on a team, half a pizza for each. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. I, what size pizza are we talking about here? I think that's the most important thing, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I did also just was wondering a little bit of the inside baseball for uh, Amazon or, you know, at AWS, do you guys have a lot of shared services? It sounds like a lot is team centric. But I'm wondering, do you have ser- you know, shared services like you know, testing center of excellence, uh, change advisory board, service desk, things like that, that you incorporate into your projects? Or do you guys try to be self-contained for most of those things? It depends. We have, we have a lot of things that are distributed. We have some things that are centralized. One of the ways that we try to make those decisions as a product is if we have someone on the team are they going to have uh, people to learn from? Are they going to have a ladder up in their career, right? If we only need one usability person on that team, who's that person going to learn from, right? How are they going to get promoted? Where where are they going to go? Versus if we centralize all the usability people and we say, okay, you guys are all one team. You work for all the teams and you do all this distributed work, but you get to work together with other people who are doing what you're doing. Like that's that makes more sense for us. Um, so it really depends how many people you have and whether they have people they can learn from. All right. We've been running long. And I think I think it's cool how you've kind of incorporate this into sort of like your plan. So I want to start to wrap things up. We always end on a lighter note. And we came up with a couple, actually, Sarah. So we were talking about this beforehand, kind of how we're going to work through things. And the idea here is I would like you... As of Wednesday, February 8th, which is when we're recording this, this will go live February 13th, I think on Monday at some point. Describe your current state using either emojis or meme or a GIF or something like that. Now, remember, this is an audio podcast, so you have to be as verbally descriptive as possible so people will be able to follow along. Okay, so there's a GIF of Kermit the Frog. And he's like waving his hands in the air and screaming because he's so excited. And like, that's how my life is right now. Like everything is chaos, but it's super exciting, right? There is so much going on that is going to be amazing that it will all come together and it will be great. That, that's a really good one because I immediately knew what you were talking about. So <laughs> hopefully people follow that along at home. Jim, what about yourself? How are you going to describe your current state using an emoji, a meme, a GIF, something like that? See. 
Sarah's the optimist. And like you said, <laughs> let's start the podcast off on a good note. I'm looking at it like, I'm like, yeah, super busy too, but I'm not doing a happy dance. So my current state would be the meme. Ain't nobody got time for that. I just feel like, <laughs> you know, it's like people want to get me involved with doing this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, oh, my plate's already full. It's overflowing. But so, yeah. And then you push it over to me and then I take care of it. <laughs> that's what, and, that's and you what ain't I'm got no for. time for that to, either. I'm here to help out as much as I can. Um, I like that one too. You know, I, I was thinking about one earlier and right now I'm going to change it on the spot because I feel like I'm very fortunate as we've been talking about identity teams. I work with some really good, smart people. And the, the GIF that I'm going to go with is, and it's GIF, not GIF. So don't even come at me, bro, with any, <laughs> any of that, that, that uh, pronunciation um, is from the movie Analyze This where Robert De Niro is talking to Billy Crystal and he's like, you, you are good. You got a gift, my friend. And he's like pointing us like, nope, yes, you are. You're good. And I think about just the really smart people that I work with, Ben, Trini, Ross, Robert, Selena, yourself, Jim, you know, it's people like that that really kind of get the real work done on the team. And I feel very fortunate to be kind of surrounded with that. So I use that gift today with someone who was helping me with a contract. So, you know, that was my way of communicating. I feel like I'm, I'm, I am meme and gif first English second language <laughs> as the way I approach it. But that's how I'm feeling right now is I just feel like, you know, there's so many good people and try to give them recognition wherever I can. Okay. Sarah, I got one more question for you. I was trolling your Twitter account and I think it was earlier this year. You mentioned something about a chaos button and I am fascinated to find out how this works. Uh, Tell me about the so, chaos button. So somebody posted a picture of a microwave where like the the controls for the microwave had been translated into questionable English. And uh, the, the microwave has a chaos button on it. And so we were kind of speculating about like, what does that mean? Like, can we just put a chaos button in everything? And so my new goal is like every product that I work on is now going to have a chaos button. And it turns out that it was actually defrost because in defrost, like all of the microwave rays go to different places in the food so that it can get uniformly warm or something like there was a reason behind the chaos. But yeah. now I'm just like, when you want to set your password policy in Amazon Cognito, it's going to be like, do you want to require uppercase? Do you want to require lowercase? Do you want to require numbers? Or do you just want chaos? <laughs> Yeah, it's everything. I hope more identity <laughs> vendors do this as like a Easter egg within like their settings somewhere. It's like, you know, it's it's a radio button inside of I don't know, Sailpoint or Savian or Okta or Cognito or whatever it is. Like, click this button and it totally scrambles all your settings in your tenant or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Um, I love the idea. I I think we need to find more ways to incorporate the chaos button. So I am. I'm hopeful that we'll see it somewhere in maybe some documentation. I don't know if it's if, if that'll get make it into the AWS documentation at any point. Uh, but if you spot it, I guess let Sarah know that that's you've seen why it because I'm guessing. That she's <laughs> yeah. All right. Why don't we go ahead and wrap it up for there, Sarah? You're always so generous with your time, and you are such a good speaker. I always enjoy uh, you know seeing you present and listening to your stories that you tell on stage and stuff like that. So. Uh, I'm glad that you keep doing it despite people saying not to do it. Those people are crazy. Keep doing it because I think there's a lot of value that you add out there to just the identity ecosphere, especially with the ID pro stuff. We got to get more people involved with that. It's such a great resource. We'll have a link in our show notes, idpro.org. 
is I, I think it's still is it still one hundred and fifty dollars for a normal membership? Is it is still the price. I don't know. If, okay, like hands down, like the best thing you can buy for yourself or ask your company to expense it. It's a total no brainer. Just just for the Slack channel alone, and having access to all those people and, and stuff like that. So shameless plug. We don't do commercials, but we are big supporters of what ID Pro does. So. Um, so we'll have that in our show notes. Uh, we'll also have a link to Sarah. If you want to ask her questions, chaos button, advice on teams. I don't know, whatever, <laughs> cognito, I guess, maybe whatever it might be. We'll have a link to her on LinkedIn that people can reach out and connect with as well as Jim and myself. We are on the web, idacpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at IDAC podcast. We're on Mastodon which is at IDA podcast at infosec.exchange. I say it every week, but I hate the way Mastodon does their, <laughs> does their naming structure. It's not easy to use and needs to get better. Um, and I am very happy also, again, plug for the Gartner stuff that we're working on. Send us your hard questions. And if you don't want your identity known on the post that Jim put out there, send it to me. I will, you know, we'll, we'll invoke like the journalist rule, right? Of not, not doing the sources, Jim will send you, we'll get your address and send you a sticker and, you know, stuff like that. So uh, we hope to see people at the Gartner IAM Summit in March, a lot of friendly faces. And I'm, we're looking for hard questions. So don't be shy. Let's, let's really put it to them <laughs> and see what we can get away with um, as we work through, you know, that process. So um, Sarah, any final words of wisdom before we let you go? No, really great to talk to you guys. On to episode 200. 200 is next. I have no idea what we're going to do, but we'll figure it out like we always do. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.